Choose life, choose a sport, choose a drop zone, choose a start time, choose a fucking big jump plane, choose turbine engines, speed, unlimited altitude, and endless horizons. Choose height, no low turns, and travel insurance. Choose jump tickets, choose tiny action cameras, choose your mates, choose a rig and matching helmet, choose swoop shorts and a range of fucking fabrics, choose 120 vertical speed and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch, watching debriefs, spirit-saving slow-mos, smashing beers after last load. Choose standing on the podium at the end of it all. Choose a win you'll love every time. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you fly NZ Aerosports? Of course, I absolutely love the NZ Aerosports business model. I mean, come on. One glance at an Icarus fuck yeah sticker and you know it lines up perfectly with the fucking pilot mentality. But outside their wonderful use of colorful language and a great company vibe, there's a long list of reasons to say NZ Aerosports, fuck yeah. NZ Aerosports blows me away right out of the gate as a canopy manufacturer with a bold offer. They give you 10 jumps on your brand new nylon to decide if you want to keep it, swap it out, or even return it for a refund. I mean, seriously, how incredible is that? That's like getting halfway through a prom and deciding you prefer the slightly racier date that goes down faster. Seriously, they do that. If you're not madly in love with your new canopy after 10 jumps, they'll let you swap it out for another size or model or even get your money back. And the range of canopies they've got? Man, they've got a style canopy to fit every jumper and every situation with models you know and trust. Like the Sapphire 3, the perfect choice for the beginner or intermediate canopy pilot. The Crossfire 3, when you're ready to kick it up that elliptical notch. The JFX 2, if you're looking to up your new swoop game. The Leia as the workhorse and dirt water dirt beast, or the Petra. The Petra cranks out crazy power and is nothing short of a record breaker. But hey, it's not always about speed either. Take the Kraken. Built as a low pack volume canopy specifically with wingsuiting in mind, she gives you all the performance you're looking for with the reliability you need that'll have you itching for that next formation, rodeo, or puffy cloud. So the equipment is top of the line kick-ass stuff as you already know, but how about the team? Well, the customer service gang is there to sort you out whenever you need them. Maddie and Beto are always there to help with Jen holding the reins. They're available for you at sales at nzaerosports.com and they've got a kick-ass live chat tool on the website if you're wanting to hit someone up right away. These are the crew you're going to want to talk to to get those custom orders in. With the stock nylon, once you know what you want, they'll have that shit on a FedEx truck as soon as the credit card machine says approved and get you in the air in no time. For your custom orders, you'll be able to get a time frame for building and shipping when you design it, so get to it. And demos. They've got demos in the U.S. available from their partner Rock Sky Market. The whole U.S. demo fleet is there with Sapphire 3, Crossfire 3, Kraken, JFX2, and Leia canopies in a range of sizes. They also offer student and tandem demos in the U.S. Bottom line, every step of the way, NZ Aerosports is there to get you what you need, and I personally couldn't be happier to be teamed up with them here on Lunatic Fringe. Hell, they've even got a special offer for all you Lunatic listeners out there. Just head to pages.nzaerosports.com forward slash into the void. That's pages.nzaerosports.com forward slash into the void and follow the instructions to register a website account with them. 
You'll score a discount voucher with 20 bucks towards any purchase over $200. I mean, come on. You know you're going to shop with NZ Aerosports, so grab a little extra cash towards that buy and enjoy. The offer is good until the 31st of December, and the voucher is good for three months, so go register now. And now, time to get started with Lunatic Fringe Into the Void, brought to you proudly by NZ Aerosports. Fuck yeah. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void with a fun one. Because this particular person I have a lot of way back memories from. And, and before we were on the podcast, uh, uh, we were talking about just how fucking long it's been. So I want to dive right in and talk to, well, who the fuck are you and what do you do? Who the fuck am I? I am Paul Wetzel. Uh, most people in the skydiving world know me as Weasel because third graders call me Weasel and skydivers are like a bunch of grown up third graders. So the Pretty name much. reappeared uh, in my later later years. Uh, I am a skydiver ever since 1990, and uh, I am a retired military dude. I was infantry for a bit, uh, flew helicopters for the last 13 years of my career, and uh, I am currently living the retired life, sending my wife to work every morning and sleeping in, which is great, (laughs) and uh, just got done with uh, going back to school, got got a career or got a uh, degree in culinary arts and food and beverage entrepreneurship, and I'm starting out my own food truck business. Oh, dude, that's so fucking epic. First off, Weasel, goddamn, it's so good to talk to you. <laughs> it has been so fucking long. The goofy shit that we got up to in the, I think we worked together for maybe a couple of years back, kind of in the beginning of my career, um, were so much fucking fun, and they kind of set the tone for so many bizarre years in my life that it's awesome to finally catch up to you after a full military career. Yeah, man, it's good to hear from you again. It's, uh, I think, I think we decided it's been about eighteen, seventeen or eighteen years since we've actually talked to each other. So it's, it's definitely good to hear your, hear your voice again. Yeah, man, and we've got so many crazy stories that that I actually wanted. That one of the funnest things about this is going to be seeing if I remember shit the same way other people remembered the same dumb shit that we used to do. <laughs> we certainly had some dumb shit we did right right but i don't know you know i mean it's been so long and the hair's getting a lot grayer so i wonder if the memories are fading as much as the color in my hair um you know i want to it's going to be really fun for somebody else that was there for a lot of this shit uh, but i want to jump back to all the way to the beginning of when you started in and we don't consider it extreme it's just skydiving but when did you start doing anything extreme anything that's kind of slightly out of the ordinary and how did that lead you to jumping out of airplanes well jumping out of airplanes was probably the first thing that i did that could be considered extreme i grew up a uh, boring suburban white kid in phoenix arizona i played <laughs> basketball in high school and uh went away to college at the university of arizona and i remember it's it's one of the few things that i remember very well I was 19 years old at a party with some friends and uh, I had a couple beers in me. And of course, every 19 year old dude with a couple beers is 10 foot tall and bulletproof. And mm. I heard a couple people talking about uh, looking to jump out of an airplane. And of course I walked up, I was like, yeah, I'd totally do that. You know, it's jumping out of a plane. How big of a deal is that? Right. And uh, one of them was my friend talking to one of his other friends. And he says, yeah, Hey, we, we've got an appointment this Saturday or next Saturday at this place, Miranda Skydiving Center. 
uh, you want to go with us? And on the outside, I was like, hell yeah, yeah, I'll go with you. On the inside, I I was thinking, what the fuck did I just get myself into? (laughs) (laughs) So that next, that next Saturday, we went, uh, December 9th of 1990, showed up at the drop zone, did the first jump course for static line progression, jumped out of a, uh, Cessna 182 and there's a guy named Greg Barons who was the who was the jump master who was the instructor and uh took us through everything we needed to do and uh got up to the got up to altitude he opened the door and he said all right put your foot out on the step and my reaction was uh what (laughs) put your foot out on the step and I, I thought fuck here we go right and as and as soon as he said as soon as he looked out at me on the step and he said go as soon as I stepped off, I, I thought to myself, this this is it. I'm This is me forever. I'm doing this. Oh, wait, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. <laughs> All right, canopy's open. Good. But it, my first thought as soon as I stepped off was this this is something for me. See, so that's, that's how I got started. That's fucking cool. But you started static line. I mean, most of the people that I talk to nowadays, with the exception of the, the real OGs, all started doing tandems. But you did it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, uh, they didn't even offer AFF at drop zone. So 1990, I don't really remember hearing about AFF as an option. And uh, they they were doing tandems at that drop zone, but I, I didn't even hear about that until I would, I'd gone a couple times. Uh, and the funny thing is, it, it I was selling my plasma to get jump money. <laughs> I would go to the, the plasma center during the week. Yeah, uh, I think it was like, uh, so this is 1990, so it's 30 years ago. The first time you go during the week, it was 10 bucks they'd give you, and if you showed up the second time, they'd give you 20 bucks. And I think that it was like 30 or 40 bucks for once you got past the first first jump course. First jump course for me was 85 dollars. Oh fuck! So I did hell. my first jump course, started selling my plasma, and I got my first uh, first uh, nine or 10 jumps there, and, and skydiving and beer drinking took their toll and i dropped out of school and moved back up moved up to oregon where my parents were living at the time and right. uh picked up picked up aff there so wait so you were only selling plasma you weren't doing the whole sperm thing like there's not a bunch of little weasels running around out there is there fuck i hope not <laughs> they're all gonna come want jobs in the food truck man <laughs> yeah right well so back in oregon you started aff yeah, I went to, uh, my parents were living in, in uh, just outside of Portland. So I went to Skydive, Oregon in Malala, which is about 45 minutes south of Portland, and, and told them what I did, brought my logbook, uh, and I looked at everything, and, and they put me on, they wanted me to, because I, uh, I had three or four, maybe five free fall jumps, just clear and pull, and then a five-second delay, and then a 10-second delay. So they put me on whatever the level was, it was the, they wanted me to go up with two instructors or two jump masters. So I jumped with two people. I did okay. So they progressed me and I only had to do two more to graduate AFF, something mm. like that. And started, uh, started, uh, fun jumping as much as I could. Sure. And then, uh, that's when I initially, initially joined the army was, uh, October of 91. So by the time I joined the army in October, in the 10 months since I started, I had about maybe 50 jumps at the most. Okay. So wait, you were wait you, you so you joined the army young. You you rocked out of college because you were drinking beer and having too much fun. Uh, 
start yes. jumping again in Oregon. Uh, what did, first off, what did mom and dad think of you showing back up, not only not in college anymore, but jumping out of airplanes? Well, my parents actually paid for my first jump. After that party, when <laughs> I decided, when I agreed to go skydiving, uh, it was early December, so I called my parents. I was short on money. I said, hey, mom, dad, uh, I've been a good boy this year. Do you feel like you can find me a Christmas present? They said, yeah, I guess. What do you want? I said, I want to go skydiving. It's $85. Can you send it by next weekend? Because I already told my friends I was going to go. <laughs> and uh, I was talking to my mom, and she's, I heard a big sigh. She just said, all right, I'll send you a check. <laughs> so the, it's just, there's, you know, the, the dumbass son that's just, just par for the course for me. Sure. But when I, when, I was, when I was leaving school, it was in the middle of the semester, um, and I, I knew I'd screwed up, and, and my dad basically gave me an ultimatum. He said, look, you're wasting your time, wasting my money, uh, so if you're, if you're going to screw up like this, I'm done after this semester. So I've, I've kind of put together a plan, called my parents, said, look, I'm dropping out of the Army. I'm going to join, or I'm dropping out of the, dropping out of school. I'm going to join the army. Um, I've talked to the recruiter, but they don't have any slots for me until, uh, October 1st. Uh, I don't know if that was just the recruiter trying to get me to fill a slot in some other MOS he needed filled, but sure. I, I said, can I, can I, can I live with you work, uh, until I join the army? And, and my parents said, yeah, you have until October. And as you're, as you're working, you need to give us give us your paycheck because you agreed to pay back your semester's tuition if you didn't finish. And I was like, ah, oh, all right, <laughs> right. But so half of my half of my check for that summer went to my parents, and the other half went to Skydive Oregon. Nice, nice. So you racked up a few jumps in Skydive Oregon, but then you ended up going into the army. I did. Um, I wanted to be a big war hero, so I joined on a. Uh, contract to go into the 75th Ranger Regiment and ended up doing all the stuff, basic training, AIT. Um, went to airborne school, which is not the same as skydiving, which right. I kind of knew, but um, I was in uh, my fifth jump in airborne school. Last jump, I had a door position. And, you know, you're standing in the door for two or three minutes, and I'm looking out, and we're flying the, I think it was a C-141 we were jumping that day. It's low level. It's, you know, it's 800 to 1,000 feet above the ground, flying over the ground. And, and the jump master, he's, front, he's standing in front of me. He goes, we're pretty fucking high up here, aren't we? I said, no, this is really fucking low. <laughs> and he just looked at me and green light turns on. He says, go. And I jumped out, did my, did my fifth, fifth jump at Airborne School, got my wings and, and uh, went on from there. Wow. Wow. I mean, that was so, but this was so many years before I met you. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I had no idea that before uh, I met you, you'd been in the military. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, let's see, joined in 91. I was active duty until 90, 98, January of 98. I got out, did National Guard for a year and a half. Uh, and when I was active duty, I'd gotten married when I lived in Louisiana, went to Korea for a few months, and she. She hauled ass up to Connecticut with some other dude, so I came home to nothing. Oh, fuck. <laughs> just, you know, I got the John Deere letter. Right. Uh, she left with a farmer. Um, but <laughs> I ended up doing the National Guard. They're, they were paying for school. Got tired of that. And uh, I don't know if you knew. Did you ever know Stuart Cavanaugh at Skydive Las Vegas? Uh, I'm sure we crossed paths, but it doesn't sound familiar off the top of my head. 
Yeah, he used to run the drop zone down in Texas where I used to jump. He worked for, for Mikey Hawks. Cool. And uh, he put in a good word for me when I, I, I was just done living in Louisiana. I said, I need to get a change. And Stuart said, hey, you know, they're always looking for people out in Vegas. So I, I sent an email to, to Michael Hawks and said, hey, I'm a friend of Stuart. Uh, and I, I guess Stuart called him or something and said, hey, check out Weasel. He's a good dude. And, right. Uh, I told Michael, I said, I, said, I still, I, I'm going to get my tandem rating. So I don't have that. But Stuart was a, uh, an examiner. I said, I'll talk to Stuart, I'll get my rating, and I can be out there as soon as this next semester's over. Uh, so I went out, uh, Michael Hawk said, yeah, come on out for a weekend, uh, hang out. He, I, I think what he was doing was giving me a chance to see <laughs> how he operated, how things were out there before <laughs> I committed. Right. Uh, and having just come out of the military, you know, the, the yelling and the, and the Michael Hawks thing didn't bother me. Right. Uh, I'd, I'd heard worse from better sure for, you know to kind of put it in perspective and at the end of the weekend I, I said hey I would love to come out and work for you he said we'd love to have you so I went back home that was uh that was during my spring break at in at school in Louisiana uh went back finished the semester packed all the stuff I owned out of my trailer and yep I lived in a trailer in Louisiana imagine that of course <laughs> yeah uh, my roommate Drove me out to Skydive Las Vegas. I unloaded all my stuff in the back of the hangar. <laughs> slept on the couch uh, out in the hangar for about two weeks. Uh, when I finally found a place to live, just up the street, and uh, and then I started the uh, the life of a sk- professional skydiver for almost uh, just over a year and a half. I think it was about nineteen months from about April until. December sure. of the next year. Sure. Oh, dude, it was. It's funny because I, I, I mean, I remember vaguely when you started because uh, I'd been there for a little while. Uh, I mean, that was my home drop zone, so I'd been jumping there since '96. Was when I started okay. jumping in Vegas, or maybe right at the end of '95 into '96. Um, but I started working relatively soon after that. But I remember when you showed up at the drop zone, you and I became friends pretty quick, as most of the people on the drop zones do. It was a small drop zone as far as yeah. you know size goes. There weren't that many people. Uh, I mean, we only used the otter on the weekends. Um, yeah, we had. What do we have on on staff? We normally have what six or seven people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a it wasn't a huge operation, but fuck, we were busy all the time. Um, oh yeah, but I guess that's why it kind of surprises me that you had had that military time beforehand that I didn't know about because you were a goofy <laughs> motherfucker, man. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> you the military you, didn't quite didn't quite ruin me. No man, it, it you you got rid of whatever the military instilled in you was gone quick because I had no clue. <laughs> you were, I mean, always scruffy, hair always kind of a mess, totally goofy, and fell right into the the um positive side of that drop zone which was we had a fuckload of fun with our students we oh were, yeah dude we were goofy oh, yeah. as fuck with those students not to mention i mean at least half of the time it was some hot chick out of vegas oh yeah of course which never hurt but we got into some weird shit dude i mean i've i was going through some of my old videos and there's videos of us especially when like jim dolan would be doing tandems uh, shout out to jim and so where do we get yeah. into the habit of stealing the female students' socks and eating them? How did that get started? I, uh, <laughs> we're a bunch of morons. I don't know. <laughs> I, we just we just did the same thing day after day after day, and, and 
just like anything, it's uh, you were you were in the Navy. I'm, I'm sure you had times out on the ships uh, uh, when you're out to sea where it's the same thing day after day, and you you just get so bored with the daily routine. Sure, you got to make it fun. Sure, and the, the thing the thing you did yesterday to make it fun just isn't that much fun today. So you got to come up with something even more extreme. All right, it's more fun. Right, and right. that. That led that led to sock eating, I'm sure. Yeah, which was I don't even know how that got started. There was there was um, picking your nose vigorously on camera. There was stealing and eating socks on camera and all that stuff. And then of course, and we have to talk about this, um, the fart contest. Oh Lord! So over the days. <laughs> how did that get started? So any anybody that's listening that has read a lot of my articles in Blue Skies will remember the. Um, the one that I wrote about the fart competition in the plane. For those of you that have read that article, this is the fucking guy that I did this competition <laughs> with. Um, but I don't even remember. I mean, it used to just kind of be an unspoken farting thing back and forth, primarily between you and I. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was always the last one out of the otter, so I was sitting up front. And you were always doing videos, so you were sitting in the back. Right. And it was just it was just kind of dueling farts. And... <laughs> Farts are funny, man. I'm, I Nisha mean, has to re- My wife still, I mean, to this day, I'll say something or, or you know, I'll, I'll let one loose and laugh and she'll look at me. She'll, I mean, all she has to say to me is 49. You're 49 years old and you're still doing this shit. <laughs> See, now, this is actually one place that I know I've changed a little bit. I'm two and a half <laughs> years into a relationship with the girl that I'm with and I've never farted in front of her. Oh, dude! I know. Then how, do you, then how do you know if it's if it's if it's the right one or not? I, I mean, know. How, how, you got to test got to test the relationship. But I gotta wait until it's completely the wrong moment, like the most horrifying possible moment to have an incredibly vicious fart, and then you'll know. <laughs> like it can't just be a squeaker as you're sitting down on the couch. It's got to be like, you know, during the middle of a, a bridesmaid speech at a wedding, and it's got to be greasy. You know, one of those. Well, yeah, but of course, when you get in the car and you you lock the windows and, and <laughs> let one loose and turn the heater on, right, right, yeah, absolutely, those are the ones you got to do. But so back to the competition. <laughs> so I don't oh, yeah. remember how it got uh, how it got started, but we ended up actually, ha- if I remember correctly, we had a conversation and decided tomorrow it's on. I think I I I don't remember that conversation, but it, it was. It, it would not surprise me. Well, I, the only reason that I that I re- recall that in my own memory is because I specifically the night before had my ultimate recipe for gassy, and that was to go to um, the Lone Star Steakhouse, have a massive <laughs> fucking steak with all the trimmings and bacon and the you know everything, and then that morning on the drive to the drop zone was my uh, fucking my nuclear option, which was to eat an entire loaf of cinnamon raisin bread on the way to the oh, drop boy. zone. And it would, <laughs> you know, then then by load fucking five, it's just you know fallout every load for a thousand yeah. feet. But so yeah. That- now here's where I want to see if our memories match. You remember what ended up happening on the the final load? Yeah, we almost killed a guy. Yeah, so tell you got to tell me your version of this. Uh, I remember that load. It it's one of the times that I genuinely felt bad, but it wasn't going to stop what I was doing. Right. Because uh, for those that may not know, Skydive Las Vegas has uh, we had a contractor had a deal with a, a Japanese guy in town who was a tour guide. <laughs> 
and he would he would take people all to all these attractions and take them to the place where you can shoot guns at the indoor range and skydiving and you know if it cost two hundred dollars for skydive he'd charge his customers three hundred bucks so he's making a shit ton of money so he brought us a lot we had like thirty percent of our clients were Japanese tourists oh at least yeah and uh, this little little Japanese guy. He was probably about five foot seven, maybe weighed 105 pounds. Little guy, he's probably 50 years old. Yeah. And he was nervous, didn't speak English. And like I said, I was always last one out. You were the first one out. So it, it, we'd been at it all day. And this guy was nervous getting on the plane, probably wanted to puke before he got on the plane. Right. Uh, I'm letting them loose. You're letting them loose, and it's it's like it's like the nor'easter, all the, the perfect storm. Right. It all met probably right inside this guy's mouth and nose, and we're climbing to altitude in the Twin Otter, which yeah. was, I think, the serial number of that Twin Otter was like thirty, it was right. like the thirtieth Twin Otter ever made. Right. And and I don't know if, if you ever heard about this or not, but Michael Hawks actually flew that thing until it had point one left on its life. <laughs> I don't doubt that. So, yeah, so this thing this thing had the 100 series engines or whatever the slowest engines in the world are. Right. So it took us 20 minutes to get to altitude. And about five minutes in, this guy is starts retching and heaving. And uh, was Dale his instructor? Uh, it was either Dale or Burgess. No, uh, either way, it was awesome. Right. But this, we all carried zip, gallon Ziploc bags because... People like to puke on us, and uh, oh yeah, uh, in Vegas for with sure. Those old, old harnesses. Oh yeah. So this guy nearly fills a bag. He's got his. He's leaning over. Looks like he's halfway unconscious. Eyes are closed. He looks like he looks like those videos of the little kids who are trying to stay awake and eat their ice cream at the same time. But he's trying to stay awake and barfing in the bag. And you and I are laughing our asses off. Everybody else is holding their nose, and you and I are just going at it and we we didn't stop man <laughs> we didn't stop and and we all go do our tandems and and at our sunday evening uh sunday evening week end of the week staff meeting hawks was fucking pissed he was yelling at you and yelling at me but he you know he's pointing at you pointing at me and yelling and He's saying, you guys, he never he never specifically said Dean or Weasel. He just saying, all of you guys, but pointing at just you and me. And right. Everybody else is sitting there quiet, and you and I are laughing. And I'm trying not to laugh. It's it's like it's like trying not to laugh at a funeral. You can't, just can't help it sometimes. And you're, you're, I was holding my face laughing. You're over there laughing. And I, the thought going through my head was, Dean and I are going to have to go look for a job. <laughs> I literally thought we were going to get fired that night. So funny. Uh-uh. Oh, yeah. He had a new policy. He he made a he made a company memo signed by the boss and everything. New company policy: no farting on the plane yep. because of you and me. That yep. Oh, dude. Yeah. And I I I, I was that was bragging rights forever. Is that we made some poor oh, human man. being vomit, and we were the reason for the no farting rule in in Las Vegas. Yeah, and that that poor old dude, the poor Japanese dude. When we landed, he's waiting for the rest of his group from that that tour guide. Uh, he's he's halfway leaning on the couch he was green his skin was like light green color and i think that's when it really hit me and i felt bad i was like oh all right we we did bad but yeah so 
funny. He turned the color of what was coming out of our asses, man. Oh, man, yeah. Well, you know what shocked me about that that whole thing was we're having this war, and every other staff member on that plane all day long knew exactly who the fuck was doing it. Like, it wasn't like it was any secret. Everybody knew. Um, But I remember on one of those loads sitting across from Simon Wade, who you would have thought at some point would have just gone, dude, fuck, enough, man, and nobody said a thing. Not one person was like, you guys need to stop this shit. And I think that's part of why we just kept going and going. It was vicious. Yeah. uh, Simon, what was he? He was the drop zone operations manager or something like that. Yeah. Had had he told us to stop, had he told us, I would have stopped. Sure, me too. Uh, By no no means am I blaming all this on Simon. (laughs) Uh, Because, I mean, I did it voluntarily. I had a great time doing it, but... Had he told me to stop, uh, I would have. I would. I would have stopped. I would, I'm at least that professional. That when the boss says quit making the Panem students barf, I'll stop. Sure. Well, and the bottom line was, out of all the uh, um, authority figures on that drop zone, Simon was the one I had respect for. Yeah, he uh, like uh, again military. Milita- he was military, so he kind of kind of had a good good idea of how to balance the being an asshole with being the, uh, not the buddy, but the, the firm. Sure. Firm leadership that that makes you want to say, okay, I'll, you know, I got, I got what you're saying. Well, kind of, that was, that was the, the brilliance of how he handled himself though. Right. Because you knew he knew exactly what you were up to and he had done all those things before. And you knew one of the reasons that he kind of tolerated some of the shit that we would pull was because he had done it all before. Um, but that's part of why you respected him is because he let you get away with a lot and you knew if you were crossing a line, he'd be the one to go and he wouldn't be fucked up about it because who needed two Michael Hawks on that fucking drop zone. Um, (laughs) right. He'd be the one to pull you to the side nicely and go, look, you need to not do this. Or he'd be the one to warn you off that fucking Hawks was about to, you know, go on another rant and hear it was coming. Um, so he was the one that I had a lot of respect for. I, I had no respect at all for Michael Hawks. I had fear for Michael Hawks because we were making too much fucking money. Yeah. Uh, Simon was, was a perfect middle management type of figure. Yes. He was a good, he was a good buffer between, between Michael and us. Oh. Uh, the the uh, going back to what I was talking about getting my getting my tandem rating to work at Skydive Las Vegas. Um, I did my five initial jumps with a, with a licensed skydiver. Got signed off by my buddy Stuart in Texas. Went to uh, Vegas and I had to do five more with uh, with a licensed skydiver. And Michael asked me if uh, if I had done my five yet, and I said no. I was waiting on. Waiting on Simon to can't remember, remember remember exactly how I phrased, it, but I said I was waiting on Simon to be done with something so that I could review and get signed off. Sure. And, and Simon uh, came. He taught me early on. I mean, I hadn't even done a paying jump yet, and he taught me that words matter with Michael Hawks because if if it can if it can get distorted, it's going to get distorted with Michael Hawks yeah. uh, because. Simon pulled me outside and he said, what the fuck did you tell him? I said, I was, I was waiting to get your signature or waiting to talk to you. And, uh, apparently Michael had told Simon that I'd said, I'm wait, I, I can't do it cause I'm waiting on Simon or something like that. And I, I explained to Simon, I said, Nope, look, this is what, this is what I said. And Simon was telling me, I mean, he was kind of 
not in my face, but he's like, look, don't make me look bad. Right. Don't say this shit. And I'm thinking, fuck, I don't even have my tanning rain and I'm getting fired from this right. place. Right. Well, dude, that was, I mean, the in the, the, the time that I worked for him, not the time that I was just jumping at that drop zone, but for the two, maybe two and a half years that I worked for Hawks, he went through um, 250 staff members, not just jumpers, yep. but jumpers, packers, pilots. I mean, fuck me. That guy, he was absolutely insane. I mean, I've seen people last literally less than an afternoon at that drop zone. And I, I forget which jumper it was, got hired and fired the same day and went after Hawks with a padlock in his hand. I mean. Oh, I, was, I wasn't there for that. But yeah, he, uh, I was there just over a year and a half and, and uh, Burgess. I think Simon and Burgess were, they write the name of uh, people who got fired on the inside of their, their locker. And I mean, their list was enormous and, and just out of fun. I started doing that about, about, uh, about nine months in. So I had about nine months worth of names and it was probably 35 names. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh dude, it was crazy. And for some reason I managed to, when I started shooting video for them, I was third string because uh, Steve Werner uh, was first string. Danny Kuhn was second string. And then he brought me on. And this was right after Vic Papadato had uh, died there on a jump. Yeah. And uh, Hawks was convinced he needed a third cameraman. Well, Steve and Danny were not happy that I got hired because they didn't want a third. <laughs> um, and they were under the impression that I would just take the occasional jump jump here and there and you know hawks he loved to piss people off so instantly i just oh, became yeah. the third guy in rotation so they did they yeah. were not fucking happy about that um and because of that he was always ripping into steve or danny and i kind of slid under the radar for a long time but steve eventually left and then danny um I don't know if he actually left or got fired, but it, you know, he didn't leave under great circumstances. And then all of a sudden now I'm first string camera guy. And yeah. uh, I, I remember being on the packing mat and he happened to be in the hangar uh, for something. And I made a comment to somebody that he decided he didn't like. And he fucking went off on me Saturday afternoon, packed fucking hangar, people everywhere. And he probably spent a solid 10 minutes just screaming and yelling at me. And he <laughs> kept calling me a fucking prima donna, which oh, somehow fucking Dale Hinton and Simon Wade took prima donna and shortened that into princess, which I yep. am still fucking known as princess to this goddamn day. I remember, uh, was it, was it Burgess that bought you that little girl's shirt that said princess on it? Yes. Yes. Like the sparkly letters. Yes. God, I remember you putting that on and you wore that, you wore that thing around the drop zone with pride, dude. That was one of the funniest things you walk in and you got this princess shirt. I mean, I, I it, it's hard to get me, it, make me, <laughs> I'm a loss for words, but I, I just, I, I had nothing to say, dude. I, all I could do was laugh. Well, that was, the funny thing was they gave me that shirt. If you remember, I was leaving the drop zone because um, I was I was working again at the club. Uh, and I just kind of yeah. had enough, you know, it's got of Las Vegas after two and a half years just had finally burned me out. And I'm like, you know something, yeah. I, ca I can't work here anymore. Um, and I was working back at the club again, making a fuckload of money. And so they kind of threw me a goodbye dinner at P.F. Chang's in town in Vegas. Right. And I didn't drink. Like, I didn't drink at all, but Dale and Simon and all the Brits decided that it was horribly offensive if I was not going to drink with them at my goodbye party. <laughs> and so oh. I think it was Dale kept buying shots of Glenlivet 
um, oh, and yeah. got me so fucking drunk that I ended up leaving the party halfway through, getting into the backseat of my car, vomiting everywhere, and spending the oh. entire night in my running car in the parking lot of P.F. Chang's because it was cold. Uh, and yeah. I had to jump the next day because it wasn't officially my last day. I had like a week or so left to jump there. And everybody was absolutely sure. There was no fucking way I was showing up the next day. Uh, and I remember waking up about, I don't know, 4 o'clock in the morning in the car, finally starting to feel human again because I'd left that party at like 9 o'clock at night. And I managed <laughs> to get myself home and shower all the puke off of me. And, and uh, uh, I had that pink shirt. And I'm like, oh, fuck these guys. They did that on purpose. And I went to the drop zone with that goddamn pink shirt on because I'm like, fuck all of you. You're not winning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, that was some craziness. And it was yeah. Yeah, all of that stuff. Um, and back to the the Japanese tourists, I mean, that was the best part about that drop zone. Because that guy, that tour guy that brought all the Japanese tourists to us would tell them on the van ride to the drop zone that it was dishonorable to not tip your cameraman and your tandem instructor at least $20. Really? Yeah, dude. I mean, I mean, you remember, you'd get so many fucking tips from the Japanese tourists I, I, that you'd forget to cash your paychecks. Yeah, yeah. The thing about the the Japanese tourists is it, it's it's either next to nothing or a decent twenty dollars yeah. tip. Uh, remember, we used to use the, the term Kenji. <laughs> yes, because uh, I had I had two Japanese uh, two Japanese guys in a row named Kenji, and they both tipped me one dollar. So so from then on, if, if a Japanese tourist tipped you a dollar, you got Kenji. Yep, <laughs> and. Uh, I remember, I think it was Dale, I can't, but Dale not giving a shit. Right. He got a one. He got a $1 tip from a Japanese guy one time, and he's standing right by the soda machine. And, uh, I mean, the guy hands him a dollar, thank you very much, walks away. And as he's walking away, Dale goes, hey, anybody else want a soda? I got enough for two, because it, it was 50 cents a soda there. Right. And, and I was like, holy shit, dude, right in front of the guy. I mean, yep. he didn't speak English probably. Yeah. Oh, Dale didn't no, give that a was fuck, pretty though. Harsh. Dale didn't give no, a fuck. No. Well, I mean, they. the other thing, too, with the Japanese is they would come out, and I, I still to this day don't understand. If you took me to a country where I did not speak the language and expected me to strap myself to somebody that I couldn't talk to and go make a skydive, you're out of your fucking mind. No yeah. goddamn way. But they would come out, and every morning they'd come, there'd be a big group, and it was, we all learned just a few phrases. So it was, Ohio Gazama, Skarami Ikimasho, Swate Kurasai. And then you'd, um, you'd ask them, Episode, or um, um, you'd ask them if they were scared. And then the fucked up jokes that we would have with, like, JJ, especially, is you'd call him Ogama Boy. Remember, oh, yeah. Remember that shit? Ogama yep. Boy. Or um, what was the one JJ always yeah. used to use was uh, Sensei Mechi Mechi Krukrupa. Which was supposed to be something uh, like crazy in the head. So these yeah. poor Japanese don't fucking speak English, and all we're saying to them is like, um, "Good morning, let's go skydive. Act like a shrimp, and your instructor's gay." Yeah. <laughs> yep. And they yeah. all day long, they were, that, oh god, it was amazing. Now that you put it in perspective, that's pretty fucked up, right? <laughs> There's no way. Oh. Dude, if I showed up to it, some drop zone and the only thing somebody could say to me in English was act like a shrimp and this guy is gay, uh, no. Yeah. Not happening. That's, yeah, that's, uh, well, but, and they were, they were also quiet and so timid. Yes. Uh, especially, especially the ladies, they were always just quiet. And I started, 
messing with them. I, I, in the plane, I'd kind of, again, this goes back to trying to find something more offensive and more fun than what we did yesterday. Sure. So I started having them, you know, I'd put my, put my hand out with my fist and tell them, don't kind of gesture for them to do it. And I'd, I'd turn my, turn it so the, my, the back of my hands down and they'd do that. I'd grab their hand and I'd just pull their middle finger out and I'd, I'd have them flip off the plane. And they that. did not know what to make of that. I mean, some of them would kind of chuckle and pull their hand back and others would look like they were yep. scared that they just offended somebody for real. And, yep. and, well, but that's kind of where, again, that's a lot where, um, like, the, the mentality of especially guys like Dale and Simon, like when those two were together, even though he was oh. a manager position, when Dale and Simon started riffing off of each other, they were pretty fucking over the top. Oh yeah. Uh, at, which and for yeah. those that don't know who Simon Wade and Dale Hinton are, they're um, hardcore Brits. They military um, and uh, uh, did all kinds of hardcore stuff in the military, and then transitioned into civilian skydiving. And they've got that very dry English sense of humor, and they just don't appear to give a fuck about anything on the surface, <laughs> which can be yep. so funny. I remember actually in one of the, the I don't know if you were there at the time in in a. Um, one of the only tragic experiences in my early career, we had a fatality on the drop zone there in, in Vegas and nobody knew the guy he was visiting. Um, but everybody is still, I mean, there was a fatality on a small drop zone. We were all busted up. You know, people that had never, didn't even see the guy come to the drop zone were in tears because someone had just died. And I'll never forget. It was Dale and I believe Simon both sitting at a picnic table, eating food and laughing. And joking around like nothing was going on. And this was on a weekend. And one of the girls that was there kind of barked at him like, how can you eat and laugh, you know, with this going on? And Dale, without blinking an eye, goes, well, he's still fucking dead, isn't he? <laughs> and I remember, because, I, again, I was new, relatively new in the sport. I'm only a couple of years in, so I didn't have that thick skin yet. And I remember being horrified. And then years and years and years, all these years later, now I look back at it and go, yep, that's about right. Yeah, it just yeah. Another quick Dale story, just to show how how much he didn't give a fuck. Uh, towards towards the end of my days at Skydive Las Vegas, he was studying to be an EMT. He was going to go work in a uh, uh, work for an ambulance company or something like that. So he always had his books. He would always sit at the the table out just outside the just right inside the hangar, and between jumps or downtime, he'd be studying. So he had two or three books out on the on the on the picnic table and in his school supplies, he had a, he had a ruler just, you know, cause everybody has a ruler in their school supplies. And he's sitting there reading the book and he's got this ruler in his hand. And, uh, this is in the days before smartphones and before digital cameras. So everybody came with a disposable camera and this girl that I was jumping with was going, she was going to go to the bathroom and she left her disposable camera on the counter right by the door that went to the hangar. <laughs> It's like, hey, Dale, let me take your picture. He looks at me, stands up. He's like, all right, hold on. So I got the camera. He turns around, pulls his pants down, shoves the ruler in between his butt cheeks. He's like, all right, go ahead. <laughs> so I take, I take a picture of Dale, put the camera, you know, wind it, put, put it back down on the counter where the girl left it. And so she gets home or wherever. She develops her pictures from her fun trip to go skydive. And there's this shirtless british guy with a ruler in his ass and in her role, role of pictures yep yeah that's dale yep oh i remember uh, um i forget who made the video i think it may have been simon made an awesome year-end video uh started yep. out with a theme song from uh reservoir dogs 
Um, yep. And it was fucking great, man. It was just this wonderful collection of, the, uh, you know, all the staff members doing our thing and some fun jumps and, and then literally dozens and dozens of horrible tandem openings because we were jumping oh, all the man. F-111 fucking train wrecks. You know, the, yep. the, the head low vectors with these horrible openings. And uh, at one point in the video, um, he walks around the corner with the camera and Dale is waiting, pants around his fucking ankles, bent over <laughs> with both cheeks spread as wide as he could get them. So you're not just looking at asshole, you're looking at like intestines. Um, well, and that was, that was, that was that was, was that Jim Dolan? Was that Dolan? And and he made he was making his asshole talk to the camera. Yes, yes. And and me being a dumbass, I I know exactly what you're talking about. I kind of walk up next to Dolan, and I kind of rest my head sideways on top of his ass while he's making his asshole talk like like Ace Ventura to, to Simon. <laughs> yes. But, but dude, we got we had so much fun doing that shit though. I, I remember yeah. shooting one video with a tandem student. Uh, you were the tandem instructor, and she was sitting at the picnic benches that we had, and we was going to go up on the 206, and and uh, you walk up unbeknownst to her behind her while I'm doing the interview, and you're doing this bizarre little happy dance behind her. Oh, and next, yes. You remember, and then you squat down behind her. She doesn't know this at first, and you're acting like a monkey picking bugs out of her hair. Yeah. Yes, while she's <laughs> trying to do this interview. <laughs> You put that on Facebook a few years ago. Yes, I did. Let's guess. Oh, I remember that. I dude. I, I still have every single video I've ever shot. I just haven't oh, gotten around. Shit. Yeah, every fucking one, <laughs> including you. Remember the one that we did to try and win that car? Yes, that was fun too. Because they had that, that car competition. What was it? A Daewoo Laganza. Yeah, and they were we were so we were trying to do that car uh, that thing, and so we made this funny little silent film, and uh, it ended with you jumping out of the airplane uh, with. And the cool thing about that jump was, for the video, I climbed out of the airplane in flight and closed the the door. So out of a two oh six, now the door's closed, and I'm flying around outside with the door closed, and you're inside. And the way we cut it was, we never showed the plane taking off. So you climbed into it on the ground, and next thing you know, you're jumping out of it in the air. But you had that yeah. big old wooden sign that I'm like, I wonder what he's going to do with that sign come dump time. And you just plopped it back on your belly and pitched, which yep. is awesome. Yep. And of course, we didn't yeah, win. That's... Some guy that made, wrote wow. a fucking song won the car. Yeah, what kind of bullshit Pussy. is that, right? Right. Well, all right. Yeah, so, and, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, and the the people from the radio station, they wanted to interview everybody uh, about their videos and, or you know their submissions. And I remember you were up on a load, and and the the way that they contacted people to drop them was that payphone outside in the hangar. Right. And so I think you were up on a load, so I had to stand by the payphone in case they called and. If I was up, you were standing by the payphone, and, and they called when you were up there, and I, I talked to them and tried to try to build it up. And uh, once once I was done, somebody said that I should have told them that I learned how to skydive just to make the video. And I was like, damn it, that that would have that would have probably helped a little bit. That would have been good. That would have been, yeah. but th- it, that would have been fucking cool. Although it was still fun yeah. anyway. I to be honest, I I never thought we were actually going to win the car, but it was definitely fun trying. Yeah, and after work that day, we had to drive into uh, the auto mall to find a 
find a uh, Daewoo dealership so that we could film that last scene. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll never forget any of that stuff. I'll tell you what, that was the, the Skydive Las Vegas and that time in the sport was it, still looking back is so weird because there's so many things that Hawks did and that that environment did that I fucking hated, but there were so yeah. many good memories. Like, yeah. Jay, did you ever go out and, and go golfing with JJ after after a day of jumping? Yeah, I remember that time we drove the cart in front of him and he tried to hit us? Yes. We, we messed, he was teeing off and we messed it up. Yes. I mean, <laughs> we'd get to do stuff like that. You know, you'd, you'd finish jumping because it was a, you know, a weekday and you only had a couple of loads. And, and he would drink a fuckload of booze and I would take a couple of Valium and see who could play worse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, see who did worse shit like that. But it was, it was funny because there was a lot of really cool times and then a lot of tragedies, you know, sprinkled around that drop zone as well. Um, yeah. Not, not the least of which was just how ugly it got for a lot of people, which really sucked. Yeah, um, it was it was good for me. Um, I know Michael Hawks is is not looked upon favorably by a lot of people, but for me, I could recognize that he he would rub people the wrong way. But it, I always got along well with him. I owe him a debt of gratitude because uh, when I was living in Louisiana, like I mentioned, I was coming off a divorce. I, I got dumped in this trailer in, in Louisiana going to school while I was in the National Guard. And I mean, he, he gave me a chance to, to go do something away from where I was before. Uh, we got along well. And I, I, it, I never asked him about it. He never said anything. But after the first time he yelled at me when I just stood there and took it, and then he just, he just walked off. After that, I think that he would come use me to vent. Sure. So if he's mad at if he's mad at the the Packers or the, the whoever's you know fueling the plane, he'd come and yell at me about the fucking worthless Packers or the worthless fuelers <laughs> or, or something like that. Right. He'd get it out of the system and, he, and he'd walk away. And after you know the first first couple of times, like, hey Weasel, sorry man, I yelled at you. I wasn't mad at you. Know, I was like I was like Michael, I, I got it, dude. Don't worry about it. Right. So so he and I got along well, but after what? I left, I I think he kind of. From what I heard, I mean, this is all secondhand stuff. When he when he went crazy, and just said "fuck it" and locked the doors and kicked everybody out. That I mean, that did not surprise me. No, no, no. You couldn't you couldn't maintain that level of fucking anger um, that he had, which was almost yeah. all the time. You know, when I first started there, he actually had um, some soft edges on him. Uh, like you, he gave me an opportunity that, quite frankly, I should not have had. I started shooting video for Hawks at Skydive Las Vegas before I had 200 skydives. And I'm shooting video. Yeah, but the reason, yeah. I was a tunnel instructor in uh, uh, in Vegas yeah. in the wind tunnel, and I'd been jumping for outlaw skydiving, the A.J. Moeller in Gene, in Nevada there. And fuck, A.J., I should, my first tandem uh, jump for him, I had like 30 skydives. It was stupid. Yeah, <laughs> just crazy. Hence the reason they called it outlaw skydiving, I guess. You know, so yeah. I look back at stuff like that, and I'm thankful for Hawks because I never would have been able to start doing what I did, especially not so early. Um, and you, you absolutely couldn't do that nowadays. Um, but no. it, it got so tainted with some of the shit that he did, and it wasn't just shit that he did to me because, quite frankly, outside of calling me a fucking prima donna really loud, he was never that bad to me. But I watched how fucked up he got with a lot of my friends, and that. 
that sucked. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's, that started to rub the wrong way. And uh, I'll remember actually one of the only times that I saw him get what he gave, and you may remember this, he had either done or said something inappropriate to Dale's then wife. Um, I was not there for that, but I did hear about it. Oh, my God. So Dale, being the extremely imposing, straight out of snatch, um, kind of <laughs> terrifying Englishman, if you're not his friend, um, didn't just run up and start screaming at him, didn't do anything like that. He took Michael into the back office and made Michael cry. <laughs> because Shit, man. apparently he told him, look, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> I'll absolutely destroy you. I, and I guess Michael was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what was coming over me. And so I kind of felt bad for Michael because as an adult man, the last thing in the world you ever want to happen is that. Um, but I'd seen him do that to so many people that I'm like, all right, that's payback. You know, and so, yeah. again, the, the grudge that I've held on Hawks it has been more for how I saw him treat so many of my friends, not so much me. And I I kind of am letting go of it some because I've talked a lot of shit about him, so I feel a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like I said, I, I can recognize why, why people wouldn't wouldn't like him, but, you know, I'm okay with him. I, I, sure. think that, I, think, I think he may have said something to the effect that I was the first person in years that that stopped working at skydive Las Vegas that left with a handshake and a thank you from him. <laughs> yep. Well, and it normally was, get, normally it, it's get the fuck out. You're fucking fired. Right. Right. Well, even when I left, it wasn't really on bad terms. It wasn't like there was a big goodbye with Michael. It was just a, okay, that's it. You know? So yeah. it wasn't, it wasn't stomping feet and screaming and yelling. It was just a, um, as of this next week, I'm done. And I don't think we really even had a discussion about it. Yeah. So now I hadn't seen you for a while after I left Skydive Las Vegas. Um, and then I went back to stripping for a while and then a bunch of other jobs and ended up working for United Airlines. And we discussed off the podcast the last time I physically saw you, you were getting on a United Airlines flight, uh, I guess, to go into the military when you were doing your flying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of. Wherever I was going. Yeah. Yeah. That's. It's, it was a long time ago, <laughs> wherever I was going. All right, so now is it true they had to train you in a different helicopter than they normally do because you're too fucking big to fit in the regular trainers? <laughs> uh, well, sort of. <laughs> um, in in flight school when I went when I went through in 2001 to 2002, uh, you for the actual flight training you start out in a TH-67, which is a Bell 206. It's like the the uh, news helicopters you, you see flying around most of the time. Sure. Uh, and then after that, you go to what they call combat skills, where you learn actual navigation. You learn more than just how to fly a helicopter. Uh, so you actually learn how to how to get to a certain spot on the ground and how to do how to do landings uh, as if you're in a formation and all that stuff. And that was in an OH-58, which is the same basically the same shell as a TH-67, um, but the, it's a little bit different. So if you are a certain seated height, you don't fit in there. <laughs> I sat in there with my, with my flight helmet on, and I had to tilt my head about, about 45 degrees one way or the other because <laughs> I was too tall. Wow. Uh, so all the Mongos that they had, they, they would send the UH-1s. So I actually got, I was one of the last flight school classes to fly Hueys. Wow. Yeah, and that was pretty cool. I mean, it's it's, it's a huge day. It's it, 
Yeah, at the end of the day, it's just another helicopter. But it was just fucking cool to say that at one point in my career, I was a Huey pilot. Um, and the guy I flew with was, uh, his name's Sean McCool. He was, he's about an inch and a half or two inches taller than me. And uh, I, we had a great time in that helicopter. I mean, it was just just a, a, a fun helicopter to fly, really easy to fly. Mm. Um, and and our, uh, our instructor pilot for Huey's was... Uh, uh, Hugh Neenan is his name. One of the greatest people I've ever met in the military. He, hmm. he was a retired CW5, and he would have fit in well at a drop zone. <laughs> awesome. I mean, he's just he's just a dick and fart joke type of guy and had a good time, taught us well. Nice. I learned more in the, in the six weeks with him than I did the rest of my flight uh, flight training. Well, and I mean, between flying with cool people and then flying that helicopter, which is just iconic as far as helicopters go, you know, if you say, I flew a helicopter in the Army, I would imagine most people, especially my age, instantly think Huey. You know, yeah. And that's the all the movies that we've ever seen. Every military helicopter is either a Huey or one of the massive Russian things. Those are the only two I think of when I think yeah. military, you know, but I'm a fixed wing guy, not a rotor guy. Now, is it right. to, with the, with the helicopter pilot, you've got to be officer to fly helicopters. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you, you've got to be a warrant officer, which is what I was or a branch officer, commission officer. Okay. Um, the difference is, uh, a warrant officer's job. Uh, so let me see if I can remember this from my warrant officer training. Uh, one officer's job is to do a specific job for their entire career. The branch officer is to be in that branch. So, for instance, in aviation, they would be a pilot who takes on the leadership roles and moves up through the ranks, and they slowly get away from the flying. But the warrant officer stays and stays flying the whole time. Gotcha. The, okay. The, the branch officers outranked us. The, the newest lieutenant out of, out of ROTC outranked me, but we were above enlisted. So I outranked the sergeant major of the Army. Not okay. that that would do any, have any, any kind of bearing on the outcome of an argument between me and the sergeant major of the army. Right, right. Now, uh, w during your time in flying, you were um, you were overseas a few times, weren't you? I was. Um, after the combat skills, we went to advanced aircraft, and I, I chose Chinook just because it's a sexy motherfucker. Fucking hell. Uh, like me. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> what they do is they sit you down at, at the end of flight school, and they they – up on the chalkboard, they say, okay, we've got this many Blackhawk slots, Chinook, Apaches, and Kiowas, and there's an order of merit list. So how well are you doing your, 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 your academic tests, your flight evaluation flights and all that? They get a list, and they say, okay, number one on the OML, what do you want? I want Blackhawk. Okay, they race one, one by the Blackhawk. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be high enough to choose Chinook, and later on they say, okay, Chinook guys come in here, we've got, three slots for Campbell, two slots for Bragg, three slots for Korea, whatever. And then the same thing, you choose where you want to go. Mm. Um, so right after flight school, I chose Korea because I heard that there was good flying hours there. Mm. So I went to, I went to Korea, uh, July of Oh two. Uh, and I was there until January of Oh four. And I got some, got some good flying hours there. Uh, came to Fort Bragg, North Carolina from Korea. And we deployed in 05 to Iraq, mm. spent, spent almost a year in Iraq, came home for a year, uh, recovered from Iraq and prepped for Afghanistan in 07, came back in uh, end of 07, spent 08 recovering and preparing for Afghanistan in 09. So I've done uh, Korea for a year and a half, not a combat tour, but it's an overseas assignment. Sure. Iraq and, 
Iraq in 05, Afghanistan 07 and 09. Jesus. So without going into detail, you've seen some shit. Uh, yes and no. Um, flying Chinooks, we are basically support. Right. We fly cargo and troops. We did. We don't have guns. Um, and occasionally there, we did. We did a lot of deliberate missions, like the air assault type stuff in '09. But but during that deployment, I had been pulled up from flight company to battalion staff. So I was not flying nearly as much as anybody else mm. because I wasn't wasn't flying as much as everybody else. I was never involved in the, the high pressure missions. I was I was just basically flying, you know, food and food and water out to people with these fobs out in the middle of nowhere. Sure. Uh, but being on battalion staff, I've, we always had a, a predator feed, live predator feed of these, these events going on. So I'm watching real time. It's, you know, it's like clear and present danger when they're watching the satellite images of these guys going through these camps. And sure. I mean, it's obviously it wasn't nearly as dangerous for me, but I mean, I was, I was really nervous watching, watching our guys going to these, shitty dusty landing areas and, and especially with with the chinooks you're putting out a uh, hundred mile an hour rotor rotor wash and this six inch thick dust and right all we see all we see is is chinook come in big cloud of dust another chinook comes in next to him big cloud of dust and you got to wait to make sure to see that these guys didn't screw up the landing because they lost visual reference and thankfully that never happened sure I mean, you must have, and this happens to me to this day, because obviously I'm still flying super actively, uh, at least once a day, I still look around and go, I don't fucking believe they let me do this shit. Yep. You, I, you must have had that. I mean, you 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 go from, I mean, literally making poor little Japanese men puke <laughs> in a Twin Otter with me in Las Vegas to flying a Chinook, you know, in, in Korea and in... Iraq and Afghanistan, how you must've just been shaking your head going, man, this is, this is an interesting life I got going. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny that when we were flying, we we would fly at certain altitudes to avoid being engaged by just random goat farmers with an AK 47. Sure. We were far enough off the ground that, you know, you get a good view of, I mean, Afghanistan is as strange as it sounds. It's, some places in Afghanistan are fucking beautiful. Oh yeah, big, big mountains, snow-covered mountains, and then uh, you're just flying from, you know, for an, for an hour, nothing going on. Sometimes it's it's just strange to to look around and go, holy fuck, this is awesome. Yeah, and then and then you get close to where you're going to land, you're like, oh shit, all right, here we go. Right, right. Hope, no, hope nobody's waiting on the approach in for me with, <laughs> right. with an AK. Well, I mean, so you do all that kind of stuff, and then now. Uh, I mean, talk about another drastic change. You go back to um, civilian life, retired from the military, chucking drugs again, uh, kind of as a part-time gig and having fun, and you decide, fuck it, I'm going to go back to school, and now you're a chef. Well, I'm a culinary school graduate. <laughs> I wouldn't quite call myself a chef. I'm yet, calling yet. you a chef. I, fuck them. I'm calling oh, you a thanks. chef. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I... Uh, Doing the doing the tandem instructor thing for so long, uh, it never got boring. It was always there was always something going on. Sure, but towards the end, it stopped. Get, it it stopped being as as fun as it was, and I wanted to stop doing tandems before I hated it. Right. Um, so I I got out in 2014. I was working at the job zone down here in Rayford, 
and there was a uh, a buyout and a changeover, and they they kind of got rid of all the all the old staff. So I I started working weekends up in Raleigh, and uh, at, at a certain point in about 2015, I was like, you know, I was I've been throwing drugs for however long. I just got out of the army. I don't have a real job. I got to figure out something to do. So I took uh, took most of 2016, I hiked the Appalachian Trail and, and to figure out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. Sure. And I'd always been interested in cooking, so I'd uh, culinary school something in the back of my mind. And when I was on the trail, I met a bunch of people that had worked in food service industry, talked to them, and, and uh, there's one guy that I met from Florida who's, who had a – he was probably mid-50s. He said one of his friends from high school had gone to culinary school not too long ago, kind of a second career thing like I was doing and got out of culinary school and she started a food truck business. Mm. And I thought to myself, I'm doing that. That's awesome. Um, and, and literally my last night on the Appalachian trail, it was October 20th of 2016. I was at a shelter just outside of, uh, Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. And there was a military guy there with his, with his kid and he was about to deploy and, so he and I were talking, and, and I mentioned that I was retired. So I said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm looking at culinary school. He said, uh, where do you live? I told him North Carolina. He said, hey, there's a, there's a school in Charlotte called Johnson & Wales University. They have a campus in um, Rhode Island, and my son goes there. So I'm talking to him about his son. And So I finished the Appalachian Trail the very next day, go to a hostel to shower, get ready to go home and I get on that computer and start looking at Johnson and Wales University in Charlotte. I applied and within a year, I, that's, that's where I went to school. Awesome. I mean, it's just kind of, kind of weird how that worked out. Thought about going to culinary school, found out, found out about one close to home and, uh, and that all came uh, to you on the trail. That's, that's cool. Cause I remember, um, Nisha, your wife was posting about it quite regularly. So myself and I'm sure a lot of other people were following your progress. You did the whole trail, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Uh, it, in 2016, the official length of the trail is 2,189.2 miles between northern Georgia up to central Maine. And I hiked from Georgia to West Virginia, took a train up to Maine, and then came back down to West Virginia. So I did the whole trail, just not, not from end to end. I did it from end to middle, then other end back to the middle. How cool is that? I mean, that, oh, what a what a fucking great way to, to especially after everything, because you're already talking about two careers in the bag. Um, what a yeah. great way to kind of find your new self and go, all right, you know something, fuck it, I'm gonna go for a nice long walk and think about this shit. Yeah, the the, the AT was is probably the most defining thing in my life because I mean it was it's a very very clean transition from a military career back into real life as a civilian. Sure. And being on the trail, walking 10, 12 hours a day, you have nothing to do but think. Sure. So, so you got lots of times to figure out a lot of shit going on in your life. And sure. If, if that's what you need. Well, and I had a, 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 obviously a dramatically smaller version of that when I did the Everest Base Camp Trail. And it's the same thing. You know, I mean, pretty much yeah. from sunup to sundown, you're walking. And it's just you. Yep. I mean, there's other people around, but it's just you just thinking – 
that's it. Yep. You know, enjoying the scenery and letting whatever thoughts come. And it's a great way to just kind of do a reset. I did a, a, a yeah. talk a, a while back with a couple of friends of mine who actually do kind of therapy groups all based around um, hikes and long trail walks and stuff. And it's it's been really, really uh, good for them. Uh, Barry and Sydney Williams do that. And, and uh, it's along the lines of that kind of thing. They do a lot of hiking all around California and they were going to do some other stuff all around the country. And they get these big groups together and it's just basically a big walking therapy group to fucking hash shit out while you're stomping around the trail. It's a great way oh, to yeah. do it. It's, 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 it's I, I can't tell you how effective it is for everybody else, but for me, it's, it's exactly what I needed. Yeah, for sure. Now, tell me about the truck. Uh, so you, you've gone through the school. I know you've already started things. I think you've already got a business name. Tell me about it. Yeah, um, just because most, most of my entrepreneurship classes were based on starting a business. I'm doing air quotes business because right. everybody else in the class, they're 20 years old, 21 years old, and they have no idea what they're going to do. So I knew I was going to do a food truck. So everything I did in class was actually real life stuff. And since I didn't have a, an actual name or anything, all I've got right now is Wetzel's Food Truck LLC is, is what my actual business name is. I don't have an actual a DBA yet, right. but uh, still working on that. Um, so I've got, got the business license. Um, I, I bought a truck and, uh, it, it was a used truck. Um, already put together as a food truck and had to get some work done on it. So I took it in on the 1st of September and these fucking clowns at Freightliner still have it fixing the brakes a month and a half later. <laughs> but, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, once I get the truck back, I've got to get local inspections from the County. Um, I've got a commissary facility set up cause you're not allowed to work out of your house and you can't work solely out of your truck. You have to have a fixed base. Right. So I, I've got a local restaurant that's going to let me rent space from them. Um, so I just need a few inspections. Um, I'm going to keep the old graphics on it right now just so I can get started and make some money and get a new wrap here one of these days. But best case scenario, I can, I can be up in business from, about three weeks after I get my truck, whenever these jackasses get done with my brakes. Sure. Dude, how excited are you? I'm, I'm ready to go. Awesome. Um, it, I was working on the truck, uh, cleaning it and doing a little bit of maintenance on the, the water reservoir and stuff in the middle of the summer in North Carolina. It, it, it's rough, man. Oh, Even I bet. With the fan on and, and the vent, the vent, uh, pumping air. It's just, yeah, it's just miserable. So now, now that it's getting cool here, I'm ready to get that truck back and, and get it up and running. Sure. Now, is is this going to be one? Have you already thought about like uh, routes, or are you going to go park yourself at the drop zone? And because I mean, I'm I'm guessing that's a great at least initial place to start and maybe work some bugs out. Is it a DZ? Yeah, um, the DZ here in town in Rayford, they've got their own restaurant. It's it's been it's established since you know probably mid seventies, uh, but the drop zone where I was working in. Uh, Raleigh, I talked to the owner, said, Hey, I'm starting a food truck and we're wondering if you'd let me come park up there once I'm up and running. He, he said, let me know. He said, just once you're up and running, let me know and we'll work something out. Cause they've been getting random food trucks, uh, about once every two to three weeks. And sounds like he's going to let me get into the rotation up there. Awesome. Uh, plus there, there are, we've got a decent, um, 
brewery scene down here in Fayetteville area, in the Fayetteville area, uh, and and many of them don't have their own restaurants, so food trucks go there. Mm. And and there's one that that has been doing. Uh, Nisha works at a physical therapy clinic here in town. She bought into it, so now she's part owner. My wife's a business owner before I am. Right. Uh, well, I'm okay with that. She's Sugar a f- mama's got me covered. She's a fuckload more responsible than you, though. Oh hell yeah! <laughs> but uh, she, their business did kind of a business to business thing last year with one of the with one of the local breweries here, and I've heard through the grapevine that they're that they are going to let me park there occasionally, work into their rotation. Awesome. Dude, I mean, it sounds to me like you've got it pretty much summed up. It's just a matter of getting the truck and getting it dialed in. I actually, I think I told you uh, in a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago that instantly, as soon as you said food truck, I pictured uh, um, your version of that movie Chef. Like, I, I, yeah. I just picture that kind of a vibe from you in a food truck. And, and uh, um, I'd imagine it instantly seemed like, oh, yes, that's the perfect fit. He would fucking love that. It just seems to fit your personality. Yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to it. I, I think I'm going to do well. Um, I, I'm very fortunate to be in a position in life right now where I'm not desperate for money. Sure. My wife's a Nisha's a uh, she's a medic, she's in the medical field, so she's been working this whole time during the pandemic. Um, I've got a, a a decent paycheck from the government every month for my retirement, uh, so I don't have to get out there and I don't have to do anything. So with the lack of that kind of pressure. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm having a lot more fun than most people who who aren't who aren't as fortunate as I am. And sure, I recognize it, and I'm grateful. Well, fuck, dude. I mean, come on, you earned it. You've you've put in your fucking hard knocks all the way down the line. So, I mean, I, don't feel guilty at all, man. Enjoy that shit, and and uh, um, it's it's good that you know, and and you're smart enough to know how how well off you are, uh, which is yeah. it makes it that much better. Yeah. Well, and and I have to um, again. We haven't spoken. We already figured this out. We've only talked via text. We have not spoken in probably eighteen years. Um, Something so, like that. Yeah. So this was fucking awesome. But now I actually get to to thank you by voice for the hot sauces that you sent me, um, oh, and yeah. and tell you what an idiot I was when you sent me the powdered hot sauce. And we're very adamant <laughs> about don't sniff this. And the first fucking thing oh. I did was open it up and sniff it. How long were you sneezing after that? Oh, dude, sneezing and eyes watering. And, and of course, <laughs> while I'm seizing up on the kitchen floor, I'm first off laughing, thinking, thank you, Weasel. And then I'm thinking, <laughs> how many people can I get to sniff this? Oh, man. That, that's all I was what thinking. You, what you got to do is, uh, I, I found this out the wrong way, but I, I will let you benefit from it. If you really want to get them, do you still have, have it in that little tube? Yes, Shake it first, open it, and then let them let them sniff it. So that some of those particles are airborne inside the tube, so they get a good whiff. Awesome, awesome, dude. <laughs> well, you always got to learn from other people's experiences and mistakes, right? Of course, of course. Yeah. Well, and I and I'm already kind of known for the hot sauce pranks because have you you've seen the show Hot Ones, of course. Oh yes. So the worst of those hot sauces to this day, the hottest hot sauce, and I have now officially tried a six million Scoville hot sauce, um, Yikes. which is not nearly as bad as the bomb. The bomb is fucking horrible. It's the most 
it's just the most vicious thing I've ever tasted. And um, my poor girlfriend at the beginning of the pandemic uh, fell victim to my fucked up sense of humor when in the romantically lit candlelit house, I dipped her toothbrush <laughs> into the bomb and then oh. wiped it off just a little bit. And in the candlelight, she couldn't see that the toothbrush was <laughs> slightly discolored and you he- I'm I'm shooting video of course on my iPhone uh, from the hallway with just flickering candle lights and all you hear is the water stop running quiet and then fuck you over and over and over again and you just hear oh. me with that horrible wheezing giggle on the camera you know the entire time so she's already paid uh, the price for my fucked up sense of humor so she knows I won't get her with that tube but there's lots of other people I can. <laughs> Well done, sir. Well done. Dude, I cannot tell you how fucking great it's been to to catch up with you. Yeah, man, it's 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 great talking to you. It's 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 one thing to to chit chat on Facebook, but it's always always better to to actually talk yes yes well we're gonna have to do it again because i know between the two of us we've got uh just from our skydive las vegas time we've probably got a hundred truly fucked up stories that will be hilarious to share so we'll consider this podcast just part one yeah we'll go over the um, mitch and wedge stories next time oh yes absolutely absolutely <laughs> brother take care man much love all right man good talking to you see ya All right, another super fun episode of Lunatic Fringe Into the Void in the Can. Brought to you, as always, by the greatest fucking magazine in the known universe, Blue Skies Magazine. Head to blueskiesmag.com where you can subscribe to the magazine. You know the the spiel. Hear all the really cool shit. Uh, Also, submit those photos. Submit those article ideas. Brought to you also by Pussfoot.com. Pussfoot.com is an extreme sports collective. Type in the website. Check it out. Also, brought to you by Summit Parachute Systems. Summit Parachute Systems has got Jarrett Martin running the whole show, making amazing pilot bailout rigs and giving kick-ass rigging courses as well. So, summitparachutesystems.com. For me, I am the fucking pilot. You're going to head to thefuckingpilot.net to get this and all the other podcasts as well as both the books. That's The Fucking Pilot Book and The Accidental Stripper in digital and print. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.